we're going to episode we're going to episode open number th- wow we're going to open episode 390 of monster kid radio with the song the monster of piedras blancas from the band the Korsakoffs from their ep the Korsakoffs. they are a surf band based out of atascadero california you can find them at the Korsakoffs one bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast where we're going to be talking about the movie the monster of piedras blancas my name is derek m cook i want to welcome you to the show I am excited about this one because this is one of my favorite monster movies, one of my favorite monster designs. I'm going to be podcasting with one of my favorite friends. That sounded weird, but you know him. It's Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland. He is coming over to talk about the monster of Piatus Blancas with me. He and I actually talked about this mid-August-ish, so there are some things that we talked about in this recording that have already come to pass, like the announcement of Wasp Woman coming out on Blu-ray, or the release of a particular movie that we ended up kind of sidetracking and talking about. That's already happened as well. So, yeah, historically, I guess it's kind of a time capsule that you're going to be listening to here, or something. Anyway, it's a fun conversation. Of course, because it's the monster of Piatras Blancas, Ken Blows sent in a segment, his famous Monsters of Filmland segment, and we really do need to come up with a title for that segment, about the movie, The Monster of Piatras Blancas, and how that magazine covered the film. It's really neat. I like that he deep dove into what the magazine was doing at the time and how they promoted the film. Also, remember last week when I was trying to get the show done so I could go to Weird Wednesday? Well, I went to Weird Wednesday. I met up with Jeff Pollier at the Joy Cinema in Tigard, Oregon, and we watched The Return of the Vampire. And as is typical when I show up at the Joy Cinema for Weird Wednesday, Jeff Punk Rock Martin, the man who runs the show, the man who owns the Joy, asked if I'd like to introduce the film. And I did. Now, this was pretty special for me because it was the first time I had done something, I guess, publicly like that since I recovered from my surgery. I don't know if my energy level was where it typically is, but I still had a blast. So big thanks to Jeff Punkrock Martin for letting me crash the party. And big thanks to Jeff Polier for joining me for a live segment, well, recorded live segment, of the Weird Wednesday Report. That's all happening in this episode, as well as some more talk about what's coming up later this month, right after this. dream change a man's whole life? Linda Christian is almost too desirable to be real. And Robert Alda, too fascinated to resist her. You really are a witch. You must become one of us first. Anything. You must take the oath to Gamba. Go great Gamba, highest executioner, supreme devil, god of evil, make your decision. Death is a plaything when you are caught in the devil's hands. And the devil's plaything is devastating. You'll never escape me, darling. Is he really her willing victim? Or a person possessed? 
spin the wheel. That knife is set to kill. In January of 1974, the American Broadcasting Company brought forth on this continent a new sitcom, conceived by Gary Marshall and dedicated to the proposition that the 1950s were awesome. That sitcom was, of course, Happy Days. It ran for 10 years and 255 episodes, casting a long shadow across American popular culture. Week after week, millions thrilled to the adventures of Richie, Fonzie, Joni, Hotsey, Ralph Mouth, and the whole gang from Milwaukee. Hello, friends. I'm Joe, and I'm half of the broadcasting team behind These Days Are Ours, a podcast dedicated to all things Happy Days. Together with my co-host Emily, we'll be exploring the series episode by episode, breaking down the themes and telling you what it all means. You can join us on this journey by visiting thesedaysareours.libson.com. Just like the original Happy Days, we'll have new episodes every Tuesday. Be there or be square. Preacher with the Atom Brain. A motion picture shot full of thrills based on scientific facts described in leading national magazines. You'll be hypnotized. You'll be terrorized. You'll be paralyzed. See a dead man come from beyond the grave. See Columbia Pictures startling... Preacher with the Atom Brain. The man they are burying in a subterranean world of horror is a victim of the Oblong Box. Now, for the first time, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee star in Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the living dead, The Oblong Box. The Oblong Box in color from American International is rated M. This week's movie has a special place in the history of Famous Monsters of Filmland because it was the first film that had a feature article dedicated to it. That movie, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. This movie was featured in Famous Monsters issue number three, which came out in April of 1959. And it was actually a double feature article because included with it was Ed Wood's classic film, Night of the Ghouls. And in the contents, we find out it was on page 40 with this little blurb. It said, exclusive two-in-one preview feature, the photo stories to whet your appetite of the monster of Piedras Blancas and Night of the Ghouls. The article about two of the near future's most unnerving chiller dealers unveiled for your inspection starts with the classic photo captioned, someone's heading for trouble. It is the monster of the Piedras Blancas. It is the classic horrifying photo of the monster holding a decapitated head. That thing creeped me out since I was a kid, and it still does. 
It is followed by another full-page photo with fantastic shot of the monster suit from head to toe with the caption, Do you see, Weed, what I mean? Again, those famous puns are coming into play more and more in Famous Monsters, starting with issue number three. The article begins with this information. The monster of Piedras Blancas, created and enacted by Jack Kevin. Who is Jack Kevin, you may ask? Fake monster lovers, go hang your head in a bucket of molasses. Jack Kevin is merely the man who created the creature from the Black Lagoon, and the monster on the campus, and the Mole Men, and Lon Chaney's disguises for James Cagney in The Man of a Thousand Faces. My first reaction was, what? I never heard of Jack Kevin, especially related to the classics mentioned. Is this right? The article continues crediting Mr. Kevin's more credits. This island earth, it came from outer space, Abbott and Costello meet Mr. Hyde, and Dorian Gray are included. What about Millicent Patrick and the Westmores? Weren't they the creators of these creatures? Who is Jack Kevin? I went to the internet to see if I could find some more information about this man. According to the IMDB, he is listed as an uncredited makeup artist in all those films and more, before he produced this classic, and then he left the film business. A biography in the all-movie site confirms that Mr. Kevin had a hand in the creature design and makeup for all the classic 50 Universal films before moving on to produce this film. It puts in question of whether or not he played the monster or not, but this was a one-hit wonder for Mr. Kevin, and except for two scripts he wrote, he was not heard from again. The article continues with a description of the monster. Bald as an avocado, half-horned, fanged, this Fangenstein, from the sea with the hide of an armadillo and the strength of a small kong haunts a lighthouse off the rugged shore of California's coast. The article gives a brief description of the movie, mentioning its quick paced and brief length. It then credits Jack with the monkeys from The Wizard of Oz before ending with this comment. From the accompanying photos, it is obvious that Kevin has come up with another great oceanic monster like the Gill Man. Peter the Porpoise flipped over it, and you can bet your bottom fin that the monster of Piedras Blancas will be a thriller of the first water. So that's this week's movie in Famous Monsters of Filmland. laid upon it. Great was the evil power granted it. Buried for 400 years, it still lives. Stare into these eyes if you dare, for every woman that does becomes a willing slave to the thing that couldn't die. You're not the same girl you were yesterday. Yesterday I was trying to do what was right. I was afraid. But I'm not afraid anymore. And every man becomes a monster. There's another casket buried somewhere on the ranch, Jessica, and Mr. Ash has promised us $5,000 if we can find it. Isn't it enough that two men are dead? 
Do the rest of you want to die too? Greed had made them unearth a monstrous evil centuries old. Now they, and they alone, had to face the consequences. you're a storyteller, you need to check out Archivos, a new story mapping and development tool from WonderThink Studios. Archivos provides storytellers with a unique opportunity, the chance to actually see the network of interaction between the story elements of their settings. Through Archivos's interactive narrative maps, storytellers can discover and explore the patterns and structures that illuminate their stories. Archivos even allows you to share those maps with your readers, providing an utterly unique and compelling format for fan engagement. Archivos really is the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of. Like that pesky Van Helsing. I love it when we talk about award-winning movies here on Monster Kid Radio. And the movie we're talking about this week is the Shock Award winner, according to Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Came in first place. You didn't know they had a contest for Shock Awards, did you? That's kind of <laughs> made up, I think. Uh, yeah, anyways, the Monster Piatus Blancas with my friend, my man, Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. And wasn't it Famous Monsters of Hollywood? If you saw the trailer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, in the trailer. I was yeah. looking at the poster, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah, right. They, they, they made that mistake. It's like, Shock Award winner from Famous Monsters of Hollywood. And you're just kind of like, oops. Well, <laughs> there should have been a Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes, yes. And and I, I tr- I've heard that that was kind of faked by them and jack warren wasn't really or jim warren wasn't really happy with it oh i'm i wouldn't be surprised yeah or you know for all we i i haven't gone back and read every single issue of the old famous monsters but for all we know they did an article in the magazine on the movie and it just became a cross-promotion thing because forry ackerman was all about you know let's promote the heck out of all this stuff which is why dracula versus frankenstein gets talked about a lot in famous monsters of film and magazine because <laughs> ackerman actually had a cameo in the film i'm glad for it because i love the movie but anyway it's one of those things who really knows i would love to find out but i'm sure that this movie got a big bump from 
that famous or infamous photo of uh, the monster of Pedro's Blancos with the head. Right? Who didn't want to see that? <laughs> it was Who pretty didn't crazy. Want to see that movie. It's insane to think that this happened. Now, I know that we started to see some severed heads. I uh, think it's, uh, what, oh, there's one from Universal right around this time as well. Um, wasn't it the thing that wouldn't die? Yeah, so we started to see that. But this one, I feel like, really goes for it in a way that we hadn't seen any other movie studio making black and white monster movies uh, in the States. I mean, this is pretty intense. I have to agree with you. It's it's a shockingly graphic film. I mean, it, it's always kind of funny because this is one of those movies that reminds me that the 50s, even though everybody thinks, oh, you know, it's all wholesome family entertainment from the 50s. It's like, yeah, not really. Look at this movie. Look at, oh, I saw The Return of Dracula. Right. Yes. Whoa. I mean, that is, that is, that, when he, okay, uh, we're going to spoil that movie, too. I think you already did, though, on an earlier podcast, which is why I had to watch it after you guys got the, you and, um, I forget who it was, we're done talking about it. But when he falls in that pit <laughs> and is wiggling around on that stake, I'm just like, whoa. Right, that's nasty. And it goes to color, and then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when, when he, um, when She's got her, um, yeah, when the woman vampire gets staked. Right? Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, they're going for it here. Uh-huh. It's like, <laughs> I'm just giggling here. This is probably not the response one should have when seeing some when seeing something a little bloodier or more graphic than normal. But I'm just yeah. giggling, man. Um, oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's it, like, it fills me with a certain amount of joy. Maybe it shouldn't, but it does. I adore The Return of Dracula. I was so stoked when you said you started watching it. Oh, yeah. No, it's 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 a fun movie. It really is. Really is. And, and you know, I mean, they played Dracula pretty straight. He, he, was, he was a bad vampire. Uh, Francis Letterer played him, and uh, I think he is an underrated Dracula. He's one of my favorite Draculas of all time. Oh, yeah. This is not the only time he played Dracula. He actually played Dracula on an episode of Night Gallery. Oh, really? Uh, it's a real short bit. It's when Night Gallery were doing the little, like, five-minute, three-minute singers. Is, is that the Blood Bank one? No, this one is actually no. inspired by or based on a story by Manly Wade Wellman, I believe. And it's in World War II and the Nazis managed to take over a small town and there's a castle there. And the people who are in the castle are very nice to them and, and host them and give them places to stay and very kind. And oops, it's Dracula's castle. Yeah, um, Ooh, it's, that's it, not good. which is why they wanted not the Nazis to stay because Dracula was hungry that day. It's really a fun little short piece. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to check that one out. The short wow. story is really fun, too. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's the story for an, another episode of MK. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I think we're talking about, what, the monster of Pedras Blancas, I think it is? <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be. <laughs> oh, I do have to mention, I, uh -huh. I, forgot, I forgot while we were talking beforehand. Remember earlier this year when we went to see The Bride of Frankenstein? Yes. And I was saying how, you know, I had seen, this is, you know, the Kiggins Theater was the first place I ever saw my, I saw my first R-rated horror film and I couldn't remember the name. Thanks to Amazon Prime. It's called The Redeemer, Son of Satan. The Redeemer, Son of Satan. Yes. 
Okay. Don't check it out. <laughs> it's not very good. Okay. But something about the poster, I'm like, that looks familiar. I started watching it, and I'm like, this is the movie. And then that moment where the guy has the knife go through his head falling off a, a rafter in the on the ceiling, it's like, yep, this is the movie. Wow. <laughs> oh, well. It's... Uh, a quick Google image search is uh, revealing some very interesting-looking screenshots. Mm, oh, right. yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, it's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> I just had to share that. I'm sorry. No, but, hey, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. So, we're going to talk about this movie. It's a great film, but you know what we got to do first. Oh, yes, of course. You know what we got to do first. We got to play around with the Classic Five. I was so looking forward to it. <laughs> For people who don't know, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I have got a deck of cards here. Right now, there are over 100 cards in my deck, uh, and each card has a question about classic monster movies. What's your favorite film? This or that? Favorite actor, actress, director, all that kind of thing. There are no wrong answers. Call it a game. Call it an icebreaker. We call it the Classic <laughs> Five. Chris, are you ready to play? Yeah, but I, there's no wrong answers. You mean I spent all night brushing up, you know, cramming for this, and there's no wrong answers? You know, and <laughs> and I'm going to even take it a step further because Chris actually owns a copy of the Classic Five deck because it is now available for sale. Yes, I do. But I am working on core deck number two. Oh, God. Okay. New questions. New questions from the core deck number two. People may have heard some of these questions in the past, but this will be the official second core deck coming out All right. probably sometime next year. Awesome. Are you ready? You got it. Here we go. Card number one. Chris, in your mind, what is the most underrated classic monster movie? Underrated. Well, I mean, Return of Dracula, I've never heard of. Right now, that's the first thing that comes in my mind. I could, oh, I could go with Gorgo, because I think that's very underrated, too. You know, it's it's a good, solid monster movie, but, you know, people are kind of like, yeah, 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 it's not that good. So I could go with that. Now, wait a minute. Are you saying that you don't think Gorgo's that good, or people are saying it's not that good? No. I, I, I've heard other people say they don't think Gorgo's uh, okay. that good. I, I enjoy it. I like it. I like it a lot. No, I'm going to go with Return of Dracula. I am the vampire. All living things are my prey. The undead are my allies. The night is my domain. And the dark, dank tomb my dwelling place. I feast on human blood. May be yours. So beware. Beware. Return of Dracula. From beyond the grave comes the dreaded Dracula, spreading corruption and horror wherever his cursed shadow falls. Innocent beauty becomes the vampire's prey as paralyzing fear turns to hypnotic fascination. You will do as I say. Yes. I bring you death. A living death. One drop of your blood and you're bound to me. Jenny Blake's soul must be freed, Doctor. And all of the souls of her victims, if any. But how? 
with a pointed stake right through the heart. He's gone. Sounds good. Okay, card number two. What is your favorite monster plant movie? Oh boy, got to be Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> the original or the uh, the musical from I think the eighties. Both. Oh, okay. I'm gonna go with both because I mean, the original is is just so so weird. You know, you've got uh, Dick Miller walking around eating plants in the in the shop. You've got this really cheesy pod thing uh-huh. opening its mouth, going, you know, feed me and, and mind control and all that. You know, so that's just great. But then the musical takes it up a notch and great performances in that. I forget her name. Uh, the, the lady who played Audrey, Ellen Gray, maybe. But she nails that role and just blasts it out of the park with her voice. I mean, her singing was amazing. So I'm going to go with both. I, I know that the musical's a little outside the uh, MKR timeline, but I'll, I'm going both. Both of those. Flat out little shop of horrors. Ellen Green. Mm. Ellen Green is who you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, you, you must have your computer open. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, I do actually do, too. I should have just looked it up, but hey, that's my bad. <laughs> Thanks for covering me, man. Hey, I got you. I got you. Feed me. Oh, take it easy, Dracula. What do you think I'm carrying here, my dirty laundry? <laughs> where a man-eating, talking plant gives homicide something to think about. And I didn't do it. Do what? Whatever. Ever see this man? Man, see picture. Why are you so nervous? Oh, boy, you kiss good, Audrey. Oh, I guess I just have a good kisser. Now you will do as I say. Yes, master. You will go out and find me some food. Yes, master. What's the matter? Don't you like me? Too bony. Too bony? Nobody ever told me that before. Beef is better than veal. Ah, you're such a dodo. What do you call this? Chopped liver? Three, who's your favorite classic Scream Queen? Oh, 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 oh no, because I hmm. uh, well, no. Oh. <laughs> God. Four of them come to mind. Four. Yeah. Julie Adams, of course. Uh-huh. Mira Corday, Margaret Sheridan, even though she only did one classic monster movie. Well, Julie Adams didn't do that many either. I mean, some people might say she only did The Creature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, 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 
evil and angers. How do you pick? What about Fay Ray, man? Oh, sh- okay, now there's five. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's kind of the classic, right? Isn't she like the prototypical? Yes, the, she the, is. Yeah. She is. Um, but it's not about who's the first or who's the best. It's who's your favorite. Who's my favorite? It's got to be evil and anchors. I mean, I saw her in The Wolfman, and she was just so good in that movie. She and Cheney had such great chemistry in that film. But, oh, boy. Yeah, I'm going to go with evil and anchors. <laughs> Just, just because I could, I could be going back and forth through the whole podcast. Let's not do that. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Man, these are tough. All right, fair enough. Well, this this next one may have appeared in previous uh, incarnations of the Classic Five. What's your favorite Val Luton film? The Cat People. Oh, it's so good. I know, I know. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the Cat People. Women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. Shut, Val. Just a minute ago, it was open. Clock. Leave, Mr. Hayden. It, it was a toss-up between that and I Walk With a Zombie, but cat people just flat out. That, yeah, no questions asked. I, I love that movie. Just beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's his first. It's amazing. Uh, and Chris, one of these days when you get a Blu-ray player, the Blu-ray I cannot recommend enough. Oh, I'm yeah, hoping hoping by Christmas because I really need one. I've got the Monster of Pedro's Blancos on Blu-ray. I can't watch the Blu-ray yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final card, final question. What classic monster movie would you show as part of a double feature with Godzilla? Two of them came to mind. I'm going with King Kong because without Kong, and I think you've said this before, we wouldn't have Godzilla. Right. I think if you go back and you trace the roots of Godzilla, it all comes back to Kong. Yeah, because they saw Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, wanted to do stop motion like Harry Hansen did, couldn't do it, you know, so they did the man the rubber suit, but Harry Hansen was influenced by King Kong, so you can trace the progression of movie monsters kind of that way. You really can. So, yeah, yeah giant movie monsters. So, yeah, I'd go King Kong first and then Godzilla. Not only that, because those are my two big monster movies. I just love both of those. They're so good. Right on. And hopefully we're showing the Japanese version and not the one with Steve Martin. I mean, Raymond Burr. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, I get it now. (laughs) Yeah, okay, thank you. (laughs) All right, Chris, that is the Classic Five. How do you feel? I feel pretty good, but, man, those were the newer questions, right? For the most part. It's going to be in the new new card. Yeah, like I said, some of those are tough. I mean... There's so many classic screen queens. How do you pick? There's so many good questions, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> Very good. I mean, I yeah. The screen and then you had to throw Fay Ray in there. I forgot Fay Ray. I can't I mean, believe she's, that. You know, <laughs> speaking of King Kong, I mean, she's really the prototypical. But you know what, Chris? This is another reason why you and I are friends. <laughs> I love Julie Adams. I love Fay Ray. Mara Corday. I think people heard last month me kind of talking about how I have a crush on her too. Oh, I do Julie. too. 
But uh, yeah, even with anchors, I mean, she's really my favorite classic scream queen. She she is the one for me because of all the things that she did. And I know the whole story between her and Lon Chaney, they didn't get along. But man, their chemistry is so palpable on screen. Oh yeah, it is. It is magical, and. It wouldn't be as magic if not for her part of the equation. Nope. She brings so much to the role. Yeah, I know there weren't animosities, but the two of them work so well. You really believe that, you know, like in The Wolfman, you really believe that they are becoming a couple through this little flirtatious kind of, you know, 40th flirtatious thing. Um, you know, just, just so good. She's so good in everything I've seen her in. She never, but then all the others are too. So, you know, I, yeah. But I have to say, I have to go with her. But I, I think Mira Corday, if you were to say underrated Supreme Queen, I'd say she's it. Ah, uh, there you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Because she is so good. Oh, she's fantastic. And, you know, we just had, well, by the time people hear this, it was back uh, in July. We had David Schechter on and we were talking about the giant claw. I'm listening to it right now. That episode is what really kind of set it in stone for me, how much I really enjoy her. I like her in other things as well. But, man, that's the one that really made me think, you know, if something were to happen to Julie, <laughs> boy, that's awful. <laughs> that, that is, is terrible. That what is. is wrong with me? <laughs> what is wrong? What is going? Okay. You know what? Let's talk about the monster of Piatto's Plank. Okay. We're, okay. We're, we're digging, I'm digging myself a hole. I don't want anything. Uh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> uh, but I got you covered. I didn't hear a thing. <laughs> now, I hope Julie just doesn't hear this episode. <laughs> I, I agree with you, I do. Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Shock Award winner The Monster of Piedras Blancas The Monster of Piedras Blancas The world's most shocking monster Stalks its unsuspecting prey Feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms The screen's most nightmarish beast. A claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean, turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. Never have you known such cringing terror, such drawn by love to the forbidden cove of the sea monster, then trapped in a torment of unendurable suspense. In the screen monsterama of a thousand incredible... See the movie named the most brain-paralyzing shock story of them all. The Monster of Piedras Blancas. All right, so it's the Monster of Piedras Blancas. Piedras, Piedras, I, I can't speak Spanish, so I'm not going to try to roll any R's. Piedras Blancas? Sounds good to me. Okay. The Monster of Piedras Blancas, which, you know, I love this movie a lot, but the first time I saw it was only a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I had heard about it, but it was not that easy to see. It, it wasn't. I mean, I only saw it a couple of years ago as well. That's because I found a, uh, well, I found a copy of it that I don't think is quite authorized. Right. Yeah, that's how a lot of people had to see it when it was released on DV- or Blu-ray, what, last year or the year before? I, I think 2016, maybe? I snatched it right up because I knew. By the time 
I, that had come out, I had already seen it a few times and fallen in love with the mm-hmm. film. So I snatched it right up. And I got to tell you, the unauthorized versions of this, the things that were floating around in the gray market, that sort of thing. Yeah. This Blu-ray blows it away. Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I have a copy on my bookshelf or my DVD shelf. Yeah, it, you know. it looks phenomenal. It looks phenomenal compared to everything that we've seen before. Is it as cleaned up and, and pretty as, say, like when Universal cleaned up Dracula? No. But, you know, it's a movie from the late 50s. The print that they used to create their transfer, all of films did a pretty solid job with it. The only complaint that I have is that it's a bare-bones release. Isn't it yeah. all of films? Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that not all media home media consumers that want physical media are into the behind the scenes the extras the commentaries whatever as people like you and i are oh yeah man i would have liked to have seen something on here and you know this is one that i've considered maybe doing a monster kid radio fan commentary track for because i feel like there needs to be more information about this film out there it's really good yeah i think it is too i mean even even though i do have a couple of little complaints about it um which we'll get into as we're talking um, this movie is perfect. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, really? No. Well, it comes close. I mean, for, for what it is, it's a solid, solid feature. It really works well. Engaging storyline. Good. They got a solid cast. Surprisingly. Yes. Considering what I've heard the budget was, but I think it was only like $30,000 they were filming this with. Yep. Here comes the head. I've got the movie playing in the background. <laughs> um here we are yeah according to the article in the creature chronicles you know because they did some stuff in the back of the book about the aquatic kith and kin yeah it was only thirty thousand dollars isn't that crazy yeah which considering the cast they got is really amazing but i do know that they were lucky it was what produced by uh jack kevon and I forget who the director was. The director was Irvin Berwick. Right. They were both uncredited Universal, you know, employees. You know, Jack Kavon worked in, um, you know, the makeup department, and Irving, yeah, he was a uh, dialogue coach for Universal, also uncredited. So, you know, Universal was, I guess, going through a period where television was taking a chunk out of their profits. And so they had to let a lot of people go, just kind of, you know, lay them off. And the ones who wanted to make movies, they were willing to cut deals with for equipment, I guess. You know, either give it away or just rent it cheap. So I'm imagining that's how they kept this budget so low. Since they didn't have to pay as much for equipment like cameras and and vehicles and stuff, they could spend it on the cast and it pays off. Right. Yeah. That was a torturous route to get there. <laughs> this movie could be called like an unofficial Universal monster movie because of all the connections to Universal in this film. They use equipment, they use cast, they use pieces of monsters from previous Universal monster oh, yeah. movies. The Mole People, This Island Earth, and The Gill Man, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the monsters from these movies kind of sort of became the Frankenstein elements <laughs> for the monster of <laughs> Piedras Blancas. And... I love it. I love looking at it and being like, yep, I know those feet. And yeah, I know where that body came from. But it still feels unique enough to me that it's its own thing. And I just enjoy the heck out of it. I really do love this monster design. You can tell it's the Mole Man hands. You can tell it's the Mendeluna Martian feet. But it's just so, the head's kind of cool. The, you know, the monster head. 
is really good looking, looks good on film when you finally see it. Yeah, I kind of like the mismatch. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun, man. I think it looks great. And this is one of the points of contention that a lot of reviewers, especially modern-day reviewers, had of this movie. If you go back and look at the big movie guide books that came out like in the 80s and 90s, people were not too fond of the film. And one of the complaints was that you see the monster right away or you see the monster on the movie poster and it ruins it. But that was typical. That's what they did. The Gill Man appeared on the Creature from the Black Lagoon movie poster. You knew what it was going to look like going into it. You saw it on TV if you were paying attention before that oh, film yeah. came out. And Universal did this. This isn't an anomaly here. This is just what they did. In fact, if you look at some of the original movie posters, a lot of times all you see is the face of the monster. You don't see a full body shot. So yeah. I, I don't find that to be a valid complaint, reviewers who no. are certainly listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I, I don't either. It's like, you know, you know you're going to see the monster. So there's the monster on the picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, being without a face, the brain creatures. It's right there, man. It's right on the poster. Hey, it was right out in Times Square. Right? <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, it ruins it. But... It's fine. You know you're going to see a monster. One of my issues with this film is you don't see the monster soon enough, or at least bits of the monster soon enough. You see its shadow, mm-hmm. and maybe a, you know you see a hand reaching towards um, Kojak, the store owner, or the bucket of uh, meat scraps. But I, I really think they should have tried to show the monster or a bit more of the monster a little earlier. You know? Yeah, yeah. I I would I would like to see more monster too. But then I'm a monster kid. Of course, I want to see the monster. I didn't have a problem with it being seen up front in the movie poster. But yeah, I would like to see more of it in the film itself. That said, I love some of the shadow work. I love some of the the shadow work in here. I mean, you go all the way back to Nosferatu for that long tradition of seeing the silhouette of the monster against the wall. You, You have that in this film too. There's a moment mm-hmm. where he raises his arms, and yeah, maybe it looks a little cheesy to people who aren't into this kind of thing that we are, the way we are. But man, yeah. when when you see the the shadow of it raising its arms above its head, and it's just it's so cool. Yeah, and and you want to see it at that point. It's like, what is that thing? I gotta see it. You know, if they had shown a bit more, maybe just shots of the body or the feet earlier, it might have generated a bit more. I don't want to say tension. I don't think that's quite the right word, but it, it will pique your interest trying to figure out what the heck that is, because it's such a mismatch of monster parts. You know, I think they should have shown it. They didn't have to do the full reveal until the end, but just a bit more monster parts. Just, just a little more. <laughs> that sounds so bad. Um, you know, just just show it on screen. You don't have to give a complete reveal. You know, you don't have to show the, the monster's face. Just, you know, show us the hands. Show us the feet shuffling somewhere. Because, you know, they really, for the most part, kept it in as a shadow on a wall. And, you know, I, I wanted to see a little more monster. But that's just me. Oh, yeah, that's true. Don't that, we all want to see just a little more monster? Just a little more? Just a bit more monster. We should probably talk about the cast a little bit because we, we started to go there and then we kind of sidetracked and went to the monster, which is what we do. But this has got one heck of a cast, a heck of a pedigree here. I know. Les Tremaine. Yeah. Really? How does Les Tremaine end up in a movie like this? I don't care. I'm just glad he did. Oh, I am too. I mean, he was in the War of the Worlds and I'm like, oh yeah, he's the general. Holy cow. Right. You know, 
um, Angry Red Planet and your, one of our favorites, the Monolith Monsters. Exactly. Yeah. And he did a ton of voice work as well oh, in yeah. several cartoons, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> including an Ultraman. Oh, he did. He did I do an Ultraman cartoon. Yeah. Or, or uh, animated feature. Uh, just he did so much. And, and there's something about his voice is so comforting. Yeah. In this movie, he even lended his voice to uh, the American dub of King Kong versus Godzilla. I mean, he's he's done a lot for us as monster kids. Oh, yeah. yeah. So to have and, him in something like this is amazing. And, you know, I mean, his presence makes you forget that he's just basically the town doctor. Yet he's doing experiments with Fred that it's like, how do you know about ancient dinosaurs? <laughs> What? He's just got his little chemistry set set up on his living room table. Yeah, it's like you know, hanging yeah. out with the, with the local bad boy. Well, maybe not a bad boy, but the local teenager who was uh, collecting specimens for some reason. We don't know why. <laughs> and he's another comforting cast member. It's oh, yeah. Don Sullivan, the the lead from the giant Gila monster. I'm surprised they didn't get him singing in this one. <laughs> I can't see him without thinking laugh, children laugh. Yeah, yeah I can't. I can't. Or, or, I just yeah, can't. I just I can't. Yeah. You know, I and and they could have had a perfect scene on the on the beach with uh Gene Carmen. He could have been singing there. There you go. Yep. There you go. He also was in Teenage Zombies, which is a movie that I've never talked about here on MKR, but I actually really enjoy. So someday we'll talk about Teenage Zombies with oh, somebody. I'm sure it's really good. Yeah, I like that one too. I mean, zombies and a gorilla in a cage. I mean, come on, no. you, you can't. Yeah, yeah. That is. No. I think I think of the right one. Yeah, yeah. He also did a movie you you might want to see, Curse of the Undead. Oh, I have seen Curse of the Undead. Oh, you have? Okay, because I haven't. But oh, really? Yeah. And this is one of the final, what a lot of people consider the final Universal monster movie before they kind of change directions again. It's a Western, it's a vampire movie, but it's a very interesting take on vampires. Yeah, I'm curious It's to pretty see cool. It. Yeah, once again, you know, start doing some research. It's like, oh, I have never even heard of that one. Gotta watch it. And Universal, are you listening to us? Please start putting some of these other movies out on Blu-ray. Oh, We've yeah. already got Creature and Frankenstein and Dracula enough times on Blue. You've got so many other movies in your catalog, but that's a whole different story and probably YouTube series. Yeah. I anyway. Th- yeah, I agree. I, but I'm with you on that. Hey, Universal, we want to see these. Just just putting it out there, guys. Um, just, just saying. Mm-hmm, just saying. Mm-hmm. I've got two copies on DVD of your Creature Chronicles. I don't... You know. <laughs> And probably when I get Blu-ray, I will buy the Creature Chronicles because it's Creature from Black Lagoon series, whatever they're calling. I think it's, I don't know, you know, the three-disc creature thing. Right. I'll buy it on blue because it's the creature. It's the Gill Man. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I want to see some of the others. I'm right there with you. Back to the cast. Because <laughs> we're going off on a tangent again. We are. We are. So, Les Tremaine, uh, Don Sullivan. I mean, these are two people that have been in so many movies that we've watched over and over and over again and love so much. Mm-hmm. You've got John Harmon as the uh, as the lighthouse keepers, uh, Sturgis. Yes. He was in two Star Trek, the original series episodes. He did Land of the Giants, The Invaders, The Twilight Zone. And he's got a creature connection other than this movie. He appeared in the TV series How to Marry a Millionaire, which starred Laurie Nelson from... Revenge of the Creature. Hey, there you go. Yeah. 
There you go. He's got a very distinct look. It's kind of hard to, to miss him. When you see him, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen him in so many things. And oh, then, yeah, it's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He did so much television. So much television. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, he, he did a lot of work. A lot of work. Including a lot of Perry Mason. Oh, yeah. And then we've got uh, Forrest Lewis, the constable, who also did a lot of TV. Um, did a couple of Disney films and was in The Thing That Couldn't Die. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He just looks like he should play an authority figure. He, he just he looks has like the he, build. Yeah, he looks like... I'm, I'm looking at him right now, and he looks like a cop. Yeah. He looks like he should Especially be playing a small a town cop. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. And and he did in Disney's The Absent-Minded Professor, and I'm sure he did in a number I, of other things as well. I think but, he did in The Shaggy Dog, too. He was another cop. Which I wouldn't be surprised because uh, yeah, Disney be. kind of recycled yeah, their characters like that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you've got a great cast. It's a solid cast. Mm-hmm. Super um, solid cast, I feel like. Yeah. And, of course, there's Jean Carmen, who we didn't mention, but she's really, you know, she's, she's good in this. I was going to say, if there's a weak link, I'm not going to say she's subpar, but I don't feel like she brings her game as hard as some of the others. Yeah, yeah, but she also hadn't appeared in a whole lot before this, you know? Yeah, her career didn't really span as much as some of the others that we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, she did appear in another film that's a little bit relevant to what we do here, The Devil's Hand. Oh, yeah. Which I've not seen, but I'm very familiar with the movie poster, and I think it looks really cool and probably should have been the poster they used for Monos and Hands of Fate just because of the way it looks. (laughs) Yeah, I could go with that. You know, it's a hand. There's fire on it. Why not? Mm -hmm. I've never seen the film, though. I I need to see it. Yeah. But I I haven't watched it before. She also appeared in the movie Portland Expose. Um, That's right. Which is a film noir-like movie that is set here where we're at right now in portland and based on some of the events that were happening in portland in the 40s and if you go to the joy cinema uh he's actually got a poster for portland expose incorporated into some of the wall art yeah that's right like i said i'm not gonna say she did a bad job no she was fine for what she was asked to do she did great she did fine when i think about this movie i don't go to her and it just it is what it is she did fine she didn't take away from the movie she just she did fine so. Part of it is, I'm sure, you know, she was her character wasn't really written as well developed as some of the other actors, but I think that was a wise decision on, you know, their on the filmmakers' part because they're letting the heavy hitters carry this, and she's just kind of along for the ride. I know that sounds terrible. I'm not saying, you know, it's honest though. It's true. It really is. And her character, I feel like her character had the potential to be probably the most broken character in the cast. Because she hadn't mm-hmm. been home for so long. Her her mother died. Her father sent her away to boarding school for, what, 13 years or whatever. Yeah. And just having that kind of background in history and a strained relationship with her father, who may or may not have developed some sort of weird relationship with the monster. It's, you yeah. know, it's <laughs> it's odd. And she she could have been a more broken person than she seemed to be in the film. Yeah, I agree. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that her character has glossed over. Right. You know, you never get a sense that she's got any resentment towards her father for sending her away. Uh, you, you know, I mean, she's, like I said, I, you know, it's unfortunate. And I'm not trying to be nasty or cruel or, or derogatory towards her performance in this. But I don't think it got developed really well. And I think part of that is 
they knew her limitations as an actress and just just gave her enough to do. I'm trying not to sound bad. No. I mean, she's good in yeah. this. She is. But I don't think she had enough work like the other guys had, you know, before they made this movie to really pull off anything with more depth. Okay, let's go. I'll leave it at that. That, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense, yeah. Uh, the, there's a lack of depth with her character, not necessarily with her as a performer, but her character. That yeah. makes more sense. Okay. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, and we got more sh- monster shadow coming. <laughs> Sorry, it's in the background again. No, hey, no worries, man. No worries. I live my life with monster movies in the background. I totally understand. The m- yeah, and I figured... I figured this was the appropriate one to uh, be watching. <laughs> uh, Pete Dunne is the man in the rubber suit, the man who's playing the monster himself. And he was not necessarily one of these guys who did a lot of monster suit uh, performances. He was in Invaders from Mars. but I know. I saw that. And it's like, yeah, yeah there we go. Yeah. That's one of my faves. But, but he's usually like one of these background guy, second gunman in an episode of The Virginian, you know, the bar patron in Shotgun Slade. So he did a lot of TV, a lot of Western TV. So he must have looked good in a cowboy hat. Yeah, I'm sure he did, judging by his head. Because he played (laughs) Eddie, the guy who had his head ripped off. This is true. This is true, because he also (laughs) doubles there. That's correct. (laughs) Yeah, so he's holding his own head. How's that? (laughs) How awesome is that? I know. It's like, okay, now you have to carry your own decapitated head out of the ice cooler. All righty, let's go. You know, I'd, um, be, I'd be thrilled. It was like, okay, you know, <laughs> give me my head. I want to take it home. Can I take it home? <laughs> I know. I'd, I'd be like, can I have this? Come on, please, guys. <laughs> I would want that head. <laughs> in some ways, the story of the film is pretty typical of monster movies. But in other ways, I feel like they do take some chances here, uh, I mean, we are talking about decapitations and we see it and they talk a lot about the blood and they describe the corpse. We don't see a headless body, but they describe what it looks like. And it sounds pretty horrific. It's it's interesting. And again, it seems kind of risky compared to the kind of movies they were making in this era, in this genre around this time. Well, and also they broke two of the main rules of monster movies. Don't kill kids. And don't kill the dog. And the monster kills a child, a little girl. Now, you don't see that. Again, you don't see any headless bodies or anything like that. And and fortunately, yeah. You see the father carrying the body of his daughter. So, you know, you know, you know the monster got her. Totally channeling that sequence in Frankenstein, the way he's just carrying the body and everybody's kind of following. It's wonderful. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it's, it's wonderfully performed. You know, the sequ- it's not wonderful no, like a kid no, got no. killed, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Man, Sturgis is a good shot. At the, end right? of, at the end of the movie where, you know, the monster is carrying Lucille away and he tries to distract it by throwing... I don't know what it was, a pan or something from the top of the lighthouse. Quick shot, beans that monster on the head. Good going, yep. guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Not bad for a lighthouse keeper. No, not bad at all. I wonder how many takes it took for him. To, well, I know they didn't throw it from the lighthouse, but still. <laughs> It'd be fun to imagine how many takes they had to sh- do for that, you know. <laughs> eh, well. but uh, so There's a small town. Yep. Yeah. Pedro Blancas. Apparently, there really is a Pedro Blancas in California. 
There is. And, and they didn't shoot there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the, the lighthouse is like in the area, but the town itself was judged to be not photogenic mm-hmm. enough. So they went and shot it somewhere else. <laughs> it's like, hey, come on. This is the town. Shoot here. But, right. you know, I mean, there, there are considerations, and these guys probably made a wise choice. It was shot in uh, another small town in California, which is now a beach resort town. I don't think I can pronounce it. C-A-Y-U-C-O-S. It's too early and not enough coffee meat for me to try to pronounce it. And I'm not even going for it either. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's in California now. It's along State Route 1. It's to the north of uh, Cambria, if that means anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. But that's where it was shot. For the most part. Yeah, and I think the lighthouse was used in a version of 1984 based on the novel. Right. Um, yeah, the white. It, it's a pretty cool looking lighthouse. Oh, it is. I mean, it's, it, it, it's lighthouses are cool anyway, but you know. That is true. It looks good on film. The scenes they got, wherever they shot, looked good. I know that they didn't do much in the actual Pedro's Blancos, but it's it still looked nice. Right. I don't know where I was going with that, but whatever. Yeah, I, I, I kind of lost track, too, because I'm starting to think about that monster again. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's shot in this small town. Some bodies turn up on the beach without heads. And we don't see, again, the heads or the headless corpses or anything like that. But the way that people react to seeing the corpses is pretty pretty convincing. Yes. Uh, and I would imagine that people watching this movie for the first time... You know, that would have been enough for them. Mm-hmm. I think you know, so. Later on, we, we see the head swinging around. I gotta tell you. He's carrying like a bowling ball, let's be honest. <laughs> and it's it's such a throwaway shot, and it, it's almost like they shot it with the intention of inserting it, but willing to be able to pull it out real quick if the, the sensors or the ratings board or whoever is like, no, you can't do this. Yeah. It's there, but it didn't have to be, but I'm glad it is. I am too. I mean, it's it's a great shock moment. It seriously is. Both times, because we see severed heads more than once. Yeah, we well, it's the same head. It's the same head, but we see it in multiple sequences, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the second sequence, I'm surprised they got away with. I Be- was too. Because they come upon, you know, the creature drops, you know, the monster, right? we shouldn't say creature because it's not the creature of Pedro Spongos, it's the monster of Pedro Spongos. The monster drops the head in a cave. And Don and the doctor come across it, and there's a crab rubbing its claws going, ooh, dinner. You know, which, you know, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You don't expect that in this sort of, you know, in a movie from from this time. Right. You know, and and Don shoots the crab with, you know, it looks like it was pulled off with a string. Right. But, you know, Don basically shoots the crab away from the head. You know, wow, really? Jeez, that's that's pretty nasty. Yeah. You know? I, I was, again, surprised to see that, too. And we've talked a lot in the past, you and I, I think in person, when, when we meet up about, you know, watching some of these movies on a plane or while traveling and... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, normally with a classic monster movie, you're okay. You don't have to worry about somebody you know, looking over your shoulder to see what you're looking at, and and you don't have to worry about like nudity or excessive gore or anything like that. And you know, yeah. not that there's anything with watching those kinds of movies if that's what you're into. But you know, when you're on public transportation, you probably don't want to have that going, especially if you know it's during the day and there might be a kid sitting next to you or a parent or somebody. You know, you, you don't want to 
you know, have to explain yourself or hide that. You know, it's, it's awkward. It's awkward. It's awkward. And, you know, I mean, there's stuff that I, I would agree kids don't need to see and I don't need to be exposing them to it on an airplane. When I first saw this film, I was on an airplane. The first time I saw it, I was on an airplane and I think I was either going to or coming home from the first Monster Bash I'd ever been to. So not last year, but a few years back. And... <laughs> No big deal, right? I'm watching a monster movie. Right. It's black and white. I don't care. If people, people want to know what I'm watching. It's it's fine. I, I'll share my monster kid. Holy cow, there's a severed head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's got blood on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not a clean severed no. head. It's bloody. Which is weird because when they describe the corpses, they're like, it's bloodless and the veins have been pulled out and it's all. But there's blood all over the, the stump of the head. <laughs> yeah. Well, the head probably doesn't have enough blood for the creature to try and drain it. Um, he's just going for the heart. Oh, wow, there you go. I guess. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the story is these corpses turn up on the beach, and the lighthouse keeper seems to know something and is collecting meat scraps from the local shop. Uh, but he didn't get his meat scraps that day because it, I guess the shopkeeper thought he waited way too long, which we learn later that the meat scraps were to kind of keep the monster at bay to keep him from, I don't know, going out hunting on his own because he doesn't have. Yeah, well, I think we, yeah. that's the first shot of the movie, though. So we already know that something's going something's on. Something's going on, you've yeah. Got this, this really grungy looking pan and all of a sudden this claw comes over, grabs it, pulls it behind the rocks so it's like mm, someone's feeding it Some, yeah somebody's fattening it up the lighthouse keeper chases those people away from his property so it's like okay so you kind of sort of know what's happening early on right you know this lighthouse keeper for some reason is feeding this thing and you don't know why and i you know even after watching the movie it's still pretty flimsy excuse the revelation is that the lighthouse keeper comes to kind of care for the monster after his wife dies. After his wife dies. And the explanation is a little flimsy, especially since the lighthouse keeper also had a pet, also had a dog. And I I guess in my mind, if you're going to channel your relationship (laughs) attentions toward anything, it's going to be towards your four-legged man's best friend versus this scaly thing that eats raw meat. I I guess I just, that's where my brain goes, but... You know, he's a lighthouse keeper and he spends a lot of time. I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's just, it's odd. <laughs> I, yeah, it's odd. You try to fill in the blanks that the movie script really kind of gives you. And it's like, that makes no sense. What is he doing? It's not like he's out there talking to it and playing fetch with it like he could with his dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. It, it's like I just had this vision of playing fetch with one of the severed hens. I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And you, you can tell we're monster kids because we're laughing at that image. Yeah. <laughs> Here, go catch. Oh, oh boy. Oh, uh, boy. But yeah, I, I, I can't explain how. It's this weird, this. like, zookeeper thing. I, I just, it doesn't. There's a few lapses in in story logic here. This is one of them. Yeah, it's not enough to make me dislike the film. Like I said, I like the monster design enough, and I I love the performances, the the actors in this. Don Sullivan is just great. I love hanging out with Don Sullivan. He's the kind of guy that I would want to hang out with, but I'm just not cool enough to hang out with. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, I can get that. Because I mean, you know, he's. He's somebody who's collecting specimens on the beach. He must be a scientist, but they never say. 
they never say he's a young adult. You know, I, I said something about like high school or whatever. He's a young adult. I mean, clearly he's not in school anymore. Yeah. But he's still treated like an equal by the the town elders, the town authority figures, the constable, yeah. the town doc. The doc. They all the treat doc him. lets him play with his chemistry set. And in exchange, he lets the doc and the cop take his Jeep whenever they need it. Yeah, it's it's a very small town. Everybody's kind of getting along, equal kind of thing, except for the lighthouse keeper, maybe that strange storekeeper that keeps telling stories. Yeah, yeah. Everybody seems to get along really well, and and I really appreciated that. I didn't need the extra distraction that you sometimes get in movies like this, like The Blob, where the the cops don't believe the younger people. Yeah, about yeah. what's going on. I, I did appreciate that. Yeah, I did too. I mean, it's like you know, okay, this this guy's obviously doing science. You know, out on the out out on the beach, doing science, doing science. Yeah, and, and and that's not you know science like we think of it. That's science with an exclamation point. It, it really because is. We don't know what he's doing, but he knows a lot about everything. <laughs> he does. He, he okay. There is one moment of frustration between him and the constable. But to be fair, the constable's also a little frustrated with the doctor. And it's when they go back to the living room in the doctor's house or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and they're playing with chemistry. I don't know what they're doing, uh, moving <laughs> colored fluids from one beaker to another, while Fred is looking at something that may or may not be a scale because we never really get a good close look at it. Or maybe it's a gill. We never really say. I, but, I think it. I, I, Thought, I thought it was a scale which was really weird. Yeah. Because the species of, you know... Uh, no, go ahead and say it. Dinosaur. No, no, no. It's a diplovertebron. Diplovertebron, yeah. oh, <laughs> yes. Diplovertebron, um, which is a real thing. It's a real it thing. Is, it is a real thing. I did, yeah, I did some looking. It's it's it, But the thing is, it doesn't look like... The monster absolutely not it looks like a like a big alligator yeah <laughs> but okay whatever and it's and it was native to the czech republic nowhere near <laughs> near the coast of nowhere. somewhere in U- the u.s and yeah they lived in swamps not the ocean <laughs> you wonder where they came up how the, someone must have read a newspaper article about this and went, that's the word we're using. Diplovertebron. See, I was going to say they just had like a, a book of dinosaurs. <laughs> Here's a bunch of words. This one sounds good. They opened it up to a random page and went there. <laughs> oh man. But uh, it worked. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, Fred gets to play with the doctor's chemistry. Stud, the doctor and constable get, to, you know, I mean, to be honest, you kind of believe that would happen in this town. During that scene when they reveal what it is, and the constable sitting behind them, just messing around with the piano. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. That would... <laughs> That's probably the most tense all this gets when it comes to the people trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I it's mean, fun. It's, it's fine. It's believable. The, sci- the, the cop's like, what are you guys talking about? And the scientists... The, the scientists are like, well, we're doing this and we're finding this and this is what this is. And it's like, you get the sense the constable's like done with the science stuff and wants to go find a monster and shoot it. I love that. It's not, it's the scientists. It's the scientists. That's the scientists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I mean, this guy's a town doctor and he knows a pound dip, dip or whatever. Vertebrons. And he's not only just the town doctor. Isn't he also the one running the funeral for the two corpses they find at the beginning of the movie? Isn't he the one speaking? 
Yes, he is. So he's not just a man of science. He's a man of faith as well. I know. And uh, that's pretty unique as well. And I liked that too. It makes his character seem to have a bit more depth. Yeah, yeah. I can go with that. Either that or they just couldn't afford another actor on $30,000. And it's like, you've got a great voice. Do it. You've got Les Tremaine. (laughs) Use him. Yes, exactly. He'll be fine. <laughs> well, that's pretty much the setup of the movie. The, there's the Diplovertebron running around, the monster Pedro Plancus, often people, and it seems to be escalating. And it's all because the lighthouse keeper wasn't able to get the meat scraps to him. Yes, and of course, the the store clerk who didn't give him the meat scraps pays for that one. Yeah, in fact, at one point at the very beginning, when we find out he doesn't have the meat scraps, the lighthouse keeper store just says, "Well, you'll pay for that." And yep, very, very yeah, very foreboding, foreshadowing there. Yeah, uh-huh. you'll pay for that. Indeed. Yes. Yes. Although it's not it's not the lighthouse keeper that that offs him. It's the monster. No. And if you were to redo this film based on what some of the critics said that I had referenced earlier about how you see too much of the monster, if you removed almost all references and shots of that monster until much later in the movie, you could have made a case for this movie maybe being is it the lighthouse lighthouse keeper going around killing people? Is, has he snapped? And he insists it's a monster, but nobody else sees the monster. And then, yeah, I mean, you could have gone a different route with the film. And maybe that's what some of these critics that I referenced earlier wanted to see was a bit more mystery. Yeah, they're saying they saw too much of the monster? Yeah, they're saying some of the critics that I'm seeing are saying just that too much of the monster, you know, and and you don't need to see it right up front. You want to have that element of surprise. Now, and I disagree so much, but you could have made a case for hiding the monster a little bit more and making it seem like the lighthouse keeper who's been off on his own for so long finally snapped. I guess you could, but... But I'm glad they didn't. I am I'm too. glad. It's it's a flat-out monster movie. And yeah, the lighthouse keeper is hiding something, but it's he's hiding the monster, not that he's hiding killing people. Yeah, no, I, and I think they should have shown more of it, so hey, I guess... Well, yeah, me too. Know, me too. I mean, <laughs> it's like, really? Hide the monster? No. It's a monster movie. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? The lighthouse keeper's daughter is in danger. The monster gets her, and it's, it's a race to save the daughter. And, you know, Fred's got uh, plans for his relationship with the daughter, Lucille. Yeah. They're in love. He wants to be, they want to get married at one point. He says he's going to be the future son-in-law. So, you know, there's the relationship there. And, of course, there's the, the typical, well, I don't like this kid. I, I don't. You know, yeah. You're going to get married? My little girl. Yeah. No. No. Whatever. Yeah. You wonder why she doesn't just look at him and go, well, you sent me away to boarding school and now you want to get involved in my life? What are you talking about, Pop? You know? Yeah. See, again, that's that's one of the things that strains the, the credibility of the movie, I guess, a little bit is that their relationship is a bit too warm for that, I feel yeah. like. It's, it's not enough to break the movie. No. No. It's not. Nor is the very fake-looking meat cleaver enough to break the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you notice that, too, huh? <laughs> oh, man, it looks like something you'd buy at, like, a Spirit Halloween store <laughs> no. for, like, a buck after Halloween. You know, it's it's this big, bulky. You know, if they just made it smaller. Yeah. If they had just made it a little smaller, it would have looked more real. I don't know if it was made out of wood or what, but it is such... A fake looking meat cleaver that the one guy goes after the monster with I know, when the monster just... has discovered it in the in the uh the the cooler room, the walk in freezer, I guess, at the general store, which also serves as an ad hoc morgue. I know I you guess, saw that too. Which yeah, again, it's like, oh, just take them in the freezer, put them by the bacon. You know, it's like, what now? That's 
<laughs> unsanitary, folks. Just just a little but bit. It's a small town, so what the heck. Yeah, it's not like they have facilities for it, Probably right? Probably not. So, um, you know, I mean, let's just go to the local market and see if they have room in their <laughs> their, their meat room. <laughs> oh gosh, we're laughing, and it's because this movie makes us. So I know, happy. I know. I find a lot of joy in this film, and I don't know what that says about me, but I wonder when this movie came out because it came out after Creature, of course. Sure, fifty nine. Mm-hmm. Right, and we've got Gene Carmen does go swimming in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Only without a white bathing suit or any bathing suit, right? Yeah, which I found interesting that they actually made it clear that she went skinny dipping. And you wonder how many people, how many young boys in that theater were going, "Oh my, they're going to do the creature scene," and she's not wearing a swimsuit. But <laughs> turns out the creature's on the rock checking out her clothes. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, yeah, I guess. They weren't going to be filming underwater because underwater filming is way too expensive for their budget. But you just wonder how many young kids who had seen the creature saw this and were going, oh, my God, really? Really? Please, please? Oh, oh, now I'm disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, I don't know why that thought popped in my head. Well, it could be because I saw a creature when I was very young and that, that underwater sequence just sticks in my mind and then you're thinking oh this is a creature ripoff you want and then for some reason my twisted little brain went that direction <laughs> um i think it's a good thing that they didn't show the monster trying to swim yeah or coming out of the ocean because it really doesn't look like that suit would have swum it would have worked well in the water would have swum that's great <laughs> you know it doesn't look like that suit would have worked well in the water i don't even think rico browning could pull that off it's funny you say yeah. that. <laughs> because Oh, you get where we're going. This, yep. this monster does turn up, and I think Rico might have even been the guy wearing it. Right? No, but he was the guy I don't know if he wore it, but he definitely directed an episode of Flipper. Flipper's Monster. Flipper's Monster, which was directed by Rico. Rico was actually one of the co creators of the Flipper TV series. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of cool I mean, <laughs> to think about yeah, the guy who played is. the creature, the Gill Man, created Flipper. I mean, that, that's just neat. Anyway, uh, this does turn up in an episode. Uh, like you said, it's called Flipper's Monster. I don't know what season or what episode or when that even came out. Uh, yeah, but I, I know that's yeah. when it happened. So, well, that was kind of neat. And how cool is that? How cool is that? Rico Browning got to use the monster of Pedro Sponcos and Flipper. That's kind of neat. That is. And I am seeing some screenshots of it right now. Oh, really? And it is underwater, season one. And it is underwater. It is underwater. It's season one. It's in color, so you get to see it. Oh. Um, you know, colored up a little bit. It is, uh, uh, like I said, a season one of Flipper. The episode is Flipper's Monster, episode number 30. So, yeah, go check that out. Yeah, now I have to check it out because I want to see if I'm right. But, you know, I mean, the Metal Luna Mutant don't look very, like they would be very effective flippers. Yeah, I mean, you don't actually see it swimming. It's just kind of like holding on to a woman in scuba gear. <laughs> yeah, so... Now I want to go watch yeah, it. Yeah, I, I do too. So it's uh, season one, episode 30. Yep. Cool. Yep, go check it out. Oh, I will be. So I want to talk... You know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a good segue because th- this film does have some interesting bits of legacy to it, that being one of them, that it appeared in Flipper's Monster. It also gets referenced, this movie gets referenced a lot in a movie called The Naked Monster. Have you seen this? No, I have not. Okay. I have. 
Uh, and it is getting a re-release on DVD later this year. Oh, it good. was created by Ted Newsom, who is one heck of a film historian, does a lot of film commentary tracks, mm-hmm. a lot of things like that. I think he's actually from this area as well, or at least went to school in this area. Oh. Yeah, anyway, uh, he did a lot of work for Marvel and and that sort of thing, but he also did this film called The Naked Monster, which is kind of a comedic take on the monster movie, Mm -hmm. and he manages to get people like Kenneth Toby, John Agar, Gene Carmen, Robert Clark, actors and actresses who played characters in these monster movies appear in this film, kind of in cameo roles for the most part, like when John Agar shows up. He is playing Cleet from Revenge of the Creature, but they never flat out say, hey, by the way, this is Cleet from Revenge of the Creature. He just happens to be named Cleet. Yeah, and I see uh, the photo of of Kenneth Toby, and he's in his standard military flight jacket. Right. He's in all the time in uh, Thing from Another World, and also um, Mm -hmm. It Came from Beneath the Sea. He. Right. It must be part of his own wardrobe that he just carries around. Yep, I'm <laughs> it. I'm ready. And Lest remains in the movie as well, although in this case, he's not playing his character from Pedros Blancos. He's playing his character from War of the Worlds. But there are some references to Pedros Blancos in the film. There's a lighthouse scene and that sort of thing. It's a fun little movie that every once in a while does seem to struggle with what kind of movie it's going to be. Is it going to be just a send up of these older monster movies or are we trying to make it more of a modern day thing? Because Brink Stevens does show up in the movie. If I remember right, there's um, a a sequence where they're seeing something or they're describing something and Brink Stevens says something along the lines of, excuse me, let me take that back. The person with Brink Stevens says something along the lines of, well, that's just gratuitous. And then she looks at the camera and says, no, this is gratuitous. And then we cut to a shower scene of her, uh, which (laughs) is funny. It is. And and I could be misremembering it. I mean, it's something very similar to that. Mm-hmm. I am looking forward to coming it coming out again on DVD. It should be fun. And Wayne Berwick is involved with it. And Wayne Berwick appears in Monster Pedro's Blancos. He's the kid. Oh! He's little Jimmy. He's little Jimmy who finds the storekeeper without his head. Right. Little Jimmy with a limp. I don't know what yes. that's about. Um, uh, no, actually, I, I think, um, if I remember right, he... I forget the actor's name. He actually had polio, and that's what the limp's from. I feel terrible for saying something about it then, but well, no, you you didn't know. You know, it's that that's why I brought that up because it's like yeah. you know, hey, this is actually a limp that he had, okay, because of polio. Now, Wayne Berwick is the son of uh, Irvin Berwick, the director of the film, mm-hmm. and, and he would go on. Wayne would go on to do. A handful of other things as well, as well as appearing in the 1983 uh, Microwave Massacre. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Right? But Wayne Berwick is also the co-director of The the Naked Monster, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. You told me about this movie before, and I went looking for it, and my God, it's out of print, obviously, and you can't find it for, like, under 50 bucks. No, I'm sorry. I just can't buy a used DVD for $50. As of this recording, it's not out yet, but when this episode comes out, it will have been released because it'll be coming out mid-August on DVD. And if it's got everything on it that I've seen it have before, it'll have commentaries and things like that. Oh, that'll be good. I'll have to look for that one. Yeah, definitely. Should be fun. Should be fun. So that'll be coming. Anyway, uh, that's another piece of the legacy of this film but there's right. one other thing i want to talk about and and i knew about this years ago and i sent some emails out to some people to see if i can get my hands on it and i just never really went anywhere if you go over to the website mighty mega.com 
and look at an article from June 16th, 2013, you find something called the redemption of monster of Pedras Blancas. So mm-hmm. the small town where the film was made, Caocas or whatever it is, California, they were doing a fundraiser. Now this was before the film came out on DVD. Uh, you, you couldn't stream it or anything like that. You might've been able to get it on VHS. They were showing the film. Okay. Mm-hmm. You get, um, not just this film, but they also showed a new movie mm-hmm. called The Redemption of the Monster of Pedras Blancas. Really? Yeah, which I'm sure wasn't authorized. Oh, okay, okay yeah. Um, let's see. This is how the film's described, and I'm just going to read this straight from the website. This modern fairy tale set in the sleepy beach town of Keokas pays homage to the original 1959 movie filmed entirely in this very town. Shot using local and mostly amateur talent, both on screen and off, The Redemption of the Monster of Pedras Blancas is a funny, heartwarming story with a comical look at the natives of both land and sea. Following the adventures of young surfer girl, Bella, and her little dog, Lighthouse, (laughs) venturing out for a day of surfing, not having any luck finding her surfing guru and chaperone, Old Man Kaz, she determinedly sets out for her secret surfing spot with her ever-vigilant Lighthouse, riding shotgun in a wagon behind her bicycle rig, not heeding her mother's directive of never surfing alone. When Kaz shows up at Bella's house having overslept, the race is on to find Bella, who, after surviving a huge rogue wave, wakes up in a monstrous cave only to realize that he is the infamous monster of Pedras Blancas, and has saved her life has changed his monstrous ways, proudly having gone green and entertaining a stunned Bella with his rap and cuisine, expounding on his newfound awareness and importance of not eating your friends or the neighborhood kitties. Okay, wait a sec. Did you say rap and cuisine? I did. (laughs) I don't know how to respond to that other than to say I have to see that movie now. (laughs) I want to see it too so badly. Now, if... If you go to, again, the website, themadeofmega.com, look at the article, there is a link that says you can own a DVD of this for just a $10 donation. But when you follow the link, which is themonster.us, it's a dead link. The site doesn't exist anymore. Oh. And honestly, I'm not surprised. This website article is, what, five years old yeah. at this point. I've, I've tried to track this down. I've reached out to people. I, I can't find anybody or anything about it. The fundraiser was for the Keokas uh, School Foundation, which uh-huh. doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. Uh, you know, when you try to do a Google search for that or do a search for that, yeah. there is no such thing. It doesn't come up. Uh, there, There is reference to it uh, when you go to a website for the Keokas Elementary School District, but that's about it. I would love to get my hands on this. So, listeners, if anybody has any leads on the redemption of the monster of Pedras Blancas, it sounds goofy, but I gotta have it. I've gotta see this thing, man. Hey, I'll second that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have and, to see and it. And really, if somebody was doing a prestige release of Pedras Blancas on Blu-ray, this should be a special feature on the disc. Come on. Hey, uh, Screen Factory, are you listening? It was shown. It, it exists. It's a real thing. It was shown on September 1st, 2013. Oh, man. Uh, you know, it, it was a short film. It showed at 8.30, 9.30, and 10.30 a.m. at an elementary school in California somewhere. Man, I want to see this so bad. Oh, yeah. I mentioned Spring Factory. Are you listening? I mean, they do some really good releases of some 
more modern films, but, you know, hey, guys, you can back up a little. Hey, you know, I don't know if it's out yet or not by the time this episode goes out, but they do have the Roger Corman stuff. I know there's some lawsuit stuff trying to figure things out, but they do have the Wasp Woman on their release schedule. So there is some stuff coming. Oh, they have the on blue? Yeah. Oh, my. I have to get that. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. I don't know why, but I love that movie. We are so off track here. The Monster of Pedro's Blank is, ladies and gentlemen, you got to see this movie. Yeah. It may be one that a lot of people don't really remember very well, or some of them don't remember fondly, but I, I think a lot of people have, you know, have fond memories of this. And a reason I say that is um, this movie was showing in the drive-in scene during the uh, live version of Grease that was on TV a couple of years ago. I stumbled across that too, and I thought, that's really interesting. It is, because, I mean, you'd figure, you know, let's be honest, they have to pay rights. This movie is not in the public domain that I'm aware of. So they had to pay the rights to show it. And there are so many other classic horror movies they could have used that are in the public domain that they wouldn't have to pay anybody to, sh- to use. But... Someone high up in that production remembered this movie, obviously, and was like, no, we're going to use this one. I like this movie. Right on. I mean, he must have. They must have. He or she. They must have said something like that because, I mean, why else would they use it? You know. Um, I don't know. That that was just a throwaway thing I had to add in because I found it. <laughs> the thing is, is that by using that movie – you're actually getting more bang for your buck because it's a mishmash of the mole people and this island earth and creature from the black. So you're getting like three movie monster movies in one, right? Exactly. Maybe. (laughs) I'm going to go with that. (laughs) I'm going to say, yes, you're right. You're quite right. You know, if you haven't seen this movie, it's really worth checking out. It's a fun little monster feature. Got a great looking monster, a cast that you wouldn't believe was in a movie with this budget. It's the perfect Saturday matinee movie for your home theater or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. It's, it's hard to go wrong with this film. It really, it really is. is. It really is. Check it out, folks. You can, of course, find Chris McMillan at shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. There is a link in the links section at the Monster Kid Radio website. Go check it out. Let them know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. I love talking to Chris. And Chris is actually somebody I'm going to be meeting up with here in just a few days at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon. But I'll talk about that here towards the end of the show. Is there life on Mars? For centuries, we have wondered. Now, for the first time, through the new photographic miracle of Cinemagic, you will see the wonders of this strange and terrifying world when you see the angry red planet. Join this daring crew, the first in the scientific race between nations to attempt to land on Mars. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, Four, three, two, one, fire! Blast off from Earth with courageous astronauts Gerald Moore, Nora Hayden, Les Tremaine, Jack Crucian. Travel thousands of miles through space to the unknown. Cinemagic is not being shown to you now. 
but this wild land comes alive in Cinemagic. You'll see buildings miles high in Cinemagic. Journey to the center of sudden terror in Cinemagic. Be trapped by the tentacles of man-devouring plants in Cinemagic. Feel the fire-hot breath of a 40-foot monster as it reaches for you in Cinemagic. Your eyes will see the wonders of a world no eyes in this world have ever seen before. I wonder, will we ever get back to Earth? How do you do? We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein. This is Tom Lang. And this is Bill Evenson. And we're the hosts of a new podcast called Frankenstein Minute. That's right. We've taken the classic Universal Studios Frankenstein films and broken them down minute by minute. And each episode, we're going to dissect one minute of Frankenstein. We'll talk about Colin Clive, who played Henry Frankenstein. Dwight Fry, his hunchbacked assistant. Mae Clark, Henry's fiancée. And of course, don't forget that monster played by the enigmatic question mark. We'll also talk about the director, James Whale, and the fascinating flourishes he brought to the picture. And Mrs. Percy B. Shelley, Mary, of course, the author of the original novel on which the film was based. And the difference between the novel and the film. This really is a classic film, the one that many point to as the one that started it all. Um, Dracula? Uh, sure. But, you know, seriously, one minute a week? How long is Frankenstein? Frankenstein is 71 minutes. Are you sure we can uh, keep this going for 71 weeks? Oh, sure, no problem. I mean, this is Frankenstein we're talking about, not Dracula. Good point. We'll discuss characters' motivations and talk about the great performances and John Bowles. <laughs> Don't forget Kenneth Strickfadden and his amazing electrical devices. We'll even reveal which of the lead actors grew up in sleepy little Chaska, Minnesota. Frankenstein Minute premieres on August 31st, 2018. Where? You know, the usual places, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube. And check us out on FrankensteinMinute.com and Facebook and Twitter, if that's still a thing. Is Twitter still alive? Oh, it's alive. It's alive? It's alive! picture of our time has ever unleashed shocked spectacle of such scope and realism as up from the depths of prehistoric mystery rages Virgo. The headlines of the world blaze the fabulous story of this monster from another age, catapulted from some vast sub-ocean cavern by unprecedented volcanic action. And the headlines scream the story of the reckless skin divers who captured the monster and put it on exhibition. Sam! Pull out! Drop the net! What do you think you're doing? Okay, take it easy. I can't let him go back to the sea where he belongs. Why? Maybe to save your silly skins for you. Hurry, hurry, hurry to see Gogo! But the headlines do not record the story of a little boy who had a curious sympathy and understanding for the fantastic creature. What strange secret does he know that scientists only suspect? You trying to say there may be a fully grown one of these things around somewhere? How big would a full grown one be? An approximate guess. The infant. The adult. That would make it nearly 200 feet tall. Wreaking terrible vengeance against the civilization that has captured its offspring. Towering over the cities of the world as millions flee its awesome terror. Prepare 
Defying the force of the army, the might of the navy. Fire number one, Terry. Ready to open fire, sir. Fire one. Even the fury of the jets. In a crashing crescendo of sights never before beheld by human eyes and adventures never before experienced by any man or woman. Punch to welcome you to Weird Wednesday at the Joy Cinema and Pub. Thank you so much for coming out. Give yourselves a round of applause. You guys are oddly quiet tonight. Anyway, I'm not going to be quiet. I'm going to talk and all that kind of junk. Tonight on this screen, we're going to talk more about this in a minute. But we have the wonderful and amazing, great Bela Lugosi in Return of the Vampire. Let's hear it for Bela Lugosi. What else? Uh, we're going to have an excellent guest introducer up here in just a minute, so we'll call him up. Uh, next week, on this stay, on this screen, you don't want to miss this, the wonderful and amazing and the great Arch Hall Jr. in EGA, starring the great Richard Kyle, too. Let's hear it for EGA. Yes. Giant caveman movie. You can't go wrong. On October 20th, on this screen at The Joy, we will be showing the silent classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, with live musical accompaniment. Don't miss it. October 20th. Dr. Caligari, here. And then, don't miss our Scarathon. Details coming soon. October 27th, five big monster hits in one day. Do not miss our Scarathon. Let's hear for the Scarathon. That's better. I want to get out of your way because we have somebody here who knows so much more about monster movies than I will ever know, than I ever, than ever could know. He is the host of Monster Kid Radio, a great podcast. You should all listen to it. It is wonderful if you like monsters. He, he's an expert. He knows this stuff. And he's a wonderful, great friend of the Joy Cinema. So please give a big, gigantic, and I mean big, Joy Cinema round of applause for geek brother number one himself, Derek Cook. My name's Derek Cook. I produce the Monster Kid Radio podcast. Thank you for that, Jeff, all the way in the back, Jeff Pullier. Uh, anyway, I'm sure some of you guys and gals have been here when I've been fortunate enough to introduce a film. But for those of you who don't know, Monster Kid Radio is a weekly podcast that I produce here less than five minutes from this theater. Every week I talk about a classic or a not-so-classic monster movie, talk about movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and we towed up a little bit into the 70s. I love these classic monster movies, whether it's a prestige production from Universal, if it's a low-budget production like Plan 9 from Outer Space by Ed Wood, or anything in between, like what we're going to see tonight, The Return of the Vampire. Now, anybody here see Return of the Vampire before? Wow, only a few. And you guys and gals are in for a treat. I'm a big fan of this film, and when he told me, when I saw that they were going to be showing Return of the Vampire as part of Wednesday, 
was a little surprised because it's a little classier than the normal fare that he shows here. No offense to the other movies. I mean, Ega is great, and I'm going to try to be here for that too because I love that movie too. But I don't love it the same way that I love Return of the Vampire. And a big part of the reason why I love Return of the Vampire is my man Bela Lugosi, right? I know he got some applause before. Can I get an applause again for Bela? On Monster Kid Radio, we like to say we have three patron saints. John Agar, Boris Karloff, and of course, my man, Bela Lugosi. The man, man, as far as I'm concerned, you put him in a movie and it's instantly watchable, even if it is something like Plan 9 from Outer Space. The man was so charismatic and powerful, and I don't feel he gets enough credit for what he brought, not just to monster moviedom, but to moviedom altogether. Unfortunately, the things that he's most known for don't necessarily translate to the greatness that the man was capable of. He did play Dracula in 1931. The role that made him and made Universal and made monster movies and typecast him for pretty much the rest of his life. Unfortunately, it meant that he did not get top billing as things went on. He would appear in movies and would appear lower and lower on the credits list. This movie that we're about to see tonight is the last major Hollywood production in which he did get top billing. So good for him. Thankfully that happened. Now, as far as him playing Dracula, I know a lot of people know him for playing Dracula, but a lot of people might not know. He only played Dracula three times on the big screen. He played Dracula the most on stage. You know, theatrically, he did a lot of Dracula. But he was in 1931's Dracula. He was in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein as Count Dracula. Does anybody know what the third film and only other film appearance of him as Dracula is? He appeared in a short film. I believe it was called Hollywood on Parade. It runs about 10 minutes long. Uh, it was, let's see, I have the date here. 1933, and it was produced by Paramount Pictures. In it, a couple of uh, people go into like a wax museum and start seeing some of the stars of Hollywood. And one of the stars they see is Bela Lugosi as Dracula. And he walks around the, the Hollywood uh, Museum and runs into a wax figure version of Betty Boop, who then comes to life as well and does the stuff. The best part about this short, if you can see it, is when Dracula comes up to Betty Boop and says, Boop, you have booped your last boop. It's wonderful. So check it out. It's on YouTube. It's amazing. Somebody in the lobby was talking about this film. Was it a sequel to Dracula? I don't know if there's anything that's been officially released to confirm that, yes, this was supposed to be a sequel to Dracula. Now, the original Dracula novel was in the public domain. But that didn't mean that Universal didn't think that they had some rights to it anyway. So when this movie was being produced, anytime somebody did something with Dracula, Universal's lawyers would get really excited because it meant, well, maybe we can just money on a thing. Fortunately, this movie ended up getting switched a little bit. He does not play a character named Dracula. He plays another vampire. However, if you can imagine him as Dracula, this is really a sequel to the original Dracula in name only. If you look behind the scenes, a lot of the people that were involved creatively, the directors, the writers, that sort of thing, they all had ties to Universal as well. This movie fits in perfectly right after Dracula, but of course long before Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This movie also has a great vampire disintegration scene, and it's got a strong female lead, which is something you didn't see in the 1940s very often, especially in genre pictures. That's why I want this movie is actually one of my absolute favorites. It's one of my favorite Bela Lugosi films. And if I had to put together a list of like my top 10 or top 25 movies, this would be somewhere on the list. Where on the list kind of depends on what kind of mood I'm in, but it would be somewhere up there. 
I'm really excited that Jeff's going to see it, and I'm really excited that so many of you haven't seen it before. You're going to see it for the very first time. I'm going to be wandering around the lobby after the movie. I would love to hear what you guys and gals think of the film afterwards. I am a big fan of what Jeff does. I am so excited for Ega. I am so excited for The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and I'm really excited for Scarathon. And if he'll have me, and the movie's here in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse, I'd love to come out and help introduce and run the show a little bit as well. My name's Sarah Kim Cook. You can find me at monsterkidradio.net. I'm available on iTunes, on Stitcher, pretty much anywhere that you go that you can find podcasts, you can find me. I'm easy to find, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this or any other classic monster movie. Thanks again. Jeff, let's uh, do this thing, huh? I will take Nikki away. Her soul will wander through the night and you will never find where her body rests. Debating whether or not I should make Jeff actually call in a weird Wednesday report, despite the fact that we're both here right now. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing great. What a good movie. I'm glad you liked it. I, I always worry when I talk about a movie that I love so much that I might overhype it. And I know that you skipped an opportunity to see Battlestar Galactica, the original pilot film on the big screen at the Hollywood, to come here to the joy. You think you made the right choice? Yeah, I can see Battlestar at home anytime. I haven't seen this before, and it was a great experience. Initial thoughts. What do you think about the film overall? I think the film was really well done. I think uh, I think it might be better, actually, than Lugosi's Dracula. Wow. Yeah. You know, rather famously, Lugosi learned his lines for Dracula phonetically because he didn't have a command of the English language at the time. And it shows in this that by this point, he did know the language. So he still had an accent, but it wasn't as strong. Uh, he seemed like he was under less pressure and therefore more comfortable and therefore more menacing uh, as Armand Tesla. He does move around a lot more in this. I mean, he does do the cape thing, you know, over the face, which it's a little cliche, but you know what? It's 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 pretty cool to see him moving around and, and, and interacting with the camera that's moving as well. My favorite sequence is at the organ when Armand Tesla is talking to Lady Jane while she's oh, playing the organ. So good. That's my favorite. So tense. What, what did you think of Andreas? I liked Andreas. I felt sorry for him because... He didn't have control over his own destiny a lot of the times. As much as he wanted to resist Tesla, he just didn't have this, the the willpower for it until the very end when Tesla rejects him. And then finally, that breaks the spell and lets Andreas uh, redeem himself. The character catches a lot of flack uh, because of his wardrobe. You know, he's a werewolf, but his shirt's all buttoned up tight and all that. I don't have a problem with him. I actually really like him as well. Don't have a problem with that. That yeah. it, He looked fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like the makeup work on him and the design. Oh, the makeup was great. Yeah? Yeah, what a great werewolf makeup job. Very impressive. I'd have to go back and double check. I'm not, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm tired. <laughs> off the top of my head, who did the makeup on it? It's not Jack Pierce, but it looked really good, too. The year this came out was also the same year Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman came out. So this year, 43, was the year of the monster mashup or the monster meetup. 
Unfortunately, I don't think we really saw much more of that outside of the universal stuff. But this may have been the first time we saw werewolves be subservient to vampires, which is something that's, I mean, we even get now, you know, like the Underworld movies and, and, and all of that. I just adore this film so much. Oh, yeah. The whole idea of werewolves serving the vampires makes sense because going back to the original novel Dracula, Dracula has control over the beasts. And the werewolf is only a step removed from their natural cousins, the wolves. So, yeah, that was great. I did see how in the future other people would take ideas from this film and use them. Several times I saw in my head Leslie Nielsen as Dracula in Dracula Dead and Loving It. And I just know he was taking, you know, Mel Brooks was taking some of the stuff from this movie for his comedy take on it. And I don't know if you ever watched the Buffy the Vampire TV series, but Dracula has a couple of appearances throughout the seven seasons. And uh, the character of Xander, one of Buffy's friends, is kind of his Renfield and is just powerless before Dracula, kind of like Andreas was here. So I, I really think I think this movie was a powerful influence for, for years, decades to come. Yeah, I think so too, especially when it comes to Lugosi's performance as, as a vampire, as the pseudo-Dracula, Dracula in name only. Uh, I could definitely see this being an unofficial sequel to Dracula, just kind of change the name out. Oh, yeah. And I love the World War II setting, kind of creeping into something like this. You don't see that a lot as well in a lot of monster movies. I think you see it with uh, The Invisible Agent, one of the Invisible Man movies, but I can't think of very many others that have it be a big part of, of the film. Can you think of anything like that? Not offhand. It was kind of genre uh, crossing to have a horror movie that also takes place in wartime. You know, it wasn't necessarily on, on the war front, but definitely the war was playing a big part in this story. Yeah, overall, I just, I love the design of the film. I love the music. I wish the score was available as a standalone purchase because I'd snatch that up in a minute. Uh, and Lady Jane Ainsley, I, I've talked to several of my writer friends, both on the show and off mic. If this movie was in the public domain, that Lady Jane Ainsley character would be in so many stories written by me and my friends because <laughs> she is amazing to have this strong female character, a matriarchal character too, not just a young woman, but you know, a mother who is this strong character and she's the one that knows what's going on. Oh yeah, she was great. You just don't, I mean, even these days, it's, hard, it's sometimes hard to find such a strong woman character like that. Uh, especially an older woman, and to have it from a film this old was just great. Uh, this film does pass the Bechtel test. Uh, and, you know, for a movie this old, a black and white movie to actually pass the Bechtel test is just amazing. Props to Lady Jane. <laughs> Any uh, closing thoughts? I mean, we've kind of doubled the length of your normal Weird Wednesday reports at this point. I'm watching the timer. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts before I go out into the lobby? If you haven't seen this movie, you know, even if you don't get to see it on the big screen, you should find a way to rent this, find a source for it, and check this movie out. This is one of the greats. I'm glad you think so, man. I'm so glad. I'm happy that you came out to see it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Derek. And good to talk to you. Talk to you and the Monster Kids again real soon. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece.
the killer shrews. Would you sign your own death certificate? You must before you witness the electrifying night of the living dead and blood and black lace. You must free the theater from responsibility should your heart stop. Paralyzed in fright from the 12 deadly hours of the night of the living dead. Where strange, incredulous molecular mutation incites cadavers to arise live from their coffins to devour all human flesh. And the House of Horror, the House of Blood and Black Lace, a chic French fashion salon where seven breathtaking models will find their hideous diabolical end. Night of the Living Dead, together with Blood and Black Lace, a terrifying evening with the undead. Huge thanks to Jeff Polier for being part of the show this week, as well as Ken Blows and Chris McMillan. And man, most importantly, you guys and gals for listening to the show. I know I say this a lot. If it wasn't for you guys and gals listening and downloading the show and just being involved with the Monster Kid radio thing, I'd just be some weirdo sitting here in my converted dining room may or may not be wearing pants, blabbering about monster movies to anybody who cares to listen, which would probably be my cats if it wasn't for you guys and y'all. So thank you so much for making this uh, such a special thing for me. 390 episodes. I mean, that's crazy to think that I've had people along for the ride from the very beginning, or this may be your very first episode. Whatever the case, I'd love to hear what you think about this week's movie or anything else we've talked about here on the show. You can do that by emailing me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Kind of like how Steve did. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan calling with a slight correction. I was listening to the rallies, and I noticed at one point I said the word Frankenstein. When I met the word Dracula, we were talking about the return of Dracula and Frida Enescort and Lady Jane Ainsley, and I was speculating that maybe they changed the uh, the sex of the Van Helsing character into Lady Jane because they didn't want conflict with Universal's Dracula, and I think it's a Frankenstein. Anyway, small goof. Figured I'd call and correct it. That was Stephen D. Sullivan. You can find him at sdsullivan.com. He was part of the Rallies Awards announcement a few weeks ago, and we'll have him on the show down the line to talk about some other movies and, of course, next year's Rally Awards. And, yeah, no big deal about getting the name wrong. Happens to all of us, man. Anyway, if you want to call in and leave a voicemail, please feel free to do so. Like I said, I'd love to hear what you think about, well, anything Monster Kid related. Or if you've got a Monster Kid Halloween thing happening in your neck of the woods, I'd love to share that with the Monster Kid Radio crowd. So maybe write in or better yet, call in and let us know what you're doing in your area and how people can join you if they happen to be in your area with you. So we can all enjoy Halloween together. I mean, that'd be a blast. Now, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, There are a couple of things happening that I can tell you about right now. At the Northwest Film Center, they are showing a, oh wow, 35 millimeter print of the Hammer film. I'd say the Hammer film that really kind of started it all. I know it wasn't the first one, the first Hammer horror film, but come on. When you think Hammer horror, you think horror of Dracula. And that's happening on October 19th. 
That's a Friday at the Northwest Film Center. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes and there will be a Monster Kid Radio Crash Events page set up so you can learn a little bit more about that. But I'm going to be there. I know Chris McMillan is going to be there. I know Dominique Lamsey's has talked about being there. And anybody else in the area, I would love to meet you and just watch this amazing film with you at the Northwest Film Center. You know what else is happening around that time as well? At the Hollywood Theater on Saturday, October 13th and Sunday, October 14th, they're showing Curse of the Demon, the original 1957 film. And this is also a 35 millimeter print. And this is also something that I'm going to also going to be there with Chris McMillan. So come on out. And because it's not happening for another nine or 10 days, you've got time to, to get out here. And I mean, if you start hitchhiking now, you might make it in time. And the Hollywood Theater's got good popcorn. So, you know, there's a bonus. There's a bunch of other things happening as well. And as I solidify my own personal plans and how they relate to Monster Kid Radio, I'll be posting them online on an events page as well as on the website. You know, I'm trying to make the website a little bit more than just a landing page for the podcast. I've been posting uh, the YouTube videos that I've been doing for the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube channel. And that's been fun to do for me. You know, I've been trying to do these coming soon videos to let people know what's coming in upcoming episodes, even playing clips from the upcoming episode to kind of give you a taste, a tease of what's to come. Also, I recently posted a Vincent Price tag video, and you'll have to go to monsterkidradio.net or the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube channel to see what I'm talking about. But that was also a blast to do. And I hope to do even more YouTube as time goes on. There's been some talk about taking some of the older episodes and maybe putting those on YouTube might do something like that. I don't want to just take the old episode and put it on YouTube. I don't think that's really something I can do because the music that I use to open and close the show permission to use that music was given to me for the podcast, not for YouTube. And, you know, I don't want to, uh, take advantage of any uh, musicians who've allowed me to use their music on the show over the years. So I may just put the conversations of the movies themselves on YouTube. I'm going to come up with something. Stay tuned for how that's going to shake down because I'm really excited about making that happen for you as well. Even though I just told you I'm making coming soon YouTube videos about upcoming episodes of Monster Kid Radio, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what's happening next week. This is fantastic and something that I'm very excited about. Donald F. Glute. He's an author. He's a filmmaker. He's a fan. He's a monster kid. And he is going to be a guest on Monster Kid Radio next week. He's got a movie coming up, Tales of Frankenstein, that's going to be coming out on DVD and VOD later this month. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his background as a monster kid. Of course, we play the Classic Five. It's going to be a blast. And I can't wait to share this recording with you guys and gals. So come back next week for that. And here's where I talk about the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. Every year I talk about this event because it is an event that I go to every year and I'm looking forward to it so much. I look forward to it every year. To me, the Halloween season, the October season really hasn't kicked in until the Lovecraft Film Festival happens. And it's happening the first weekend of October, which happens to be this weekend at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon on October 5th, 6th, and 7th. I'm going to be a panelist on one panel with Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's, as well as Kenneth Height, who's also a podcaster and an amazing author. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to bring my recorder along. I'm going to try to record that conversation for an upcoming episode of the podcast. There's also going to be a ton of movie screenings, a ton of feature films, and so many short films that they've had to break them up into six Six blocks of short movies. That's 
phenomenal. And I can't wait to check out these films, to check out the vendors, to meet some of my friends that I haven't seen all year, to network a little bit, maybe see if I can drum up some business, either writing or doing audio work, and just connecting and letting the Lovecraftian lurking love flow into me. Something happens to me around this time every year. I was just talking with my wife, Brenda, as well as Scott and Tracy Morris earlier today. In fact, there's just something about this time of year that that hits me and makes me want to create and do things. And I think a big part of it is the Lovecraft Film Festival. There's just something magical about it. When I first started going to it, I would walk out of there thinking, man, I want to make a movie now. And I'd start writing scripts and planning. And with the exception of one year, that never really happened. These days, when I go there, I come out of it thinking, boy, I want to do something writing-wise and write this story and that story. I'm sure that's going to happen. But what's already started to happen is now I kind of want to do an audio drama. There's an audio drama idea kicking around in my head that is more Lovecraftian than Monster Kid, but, you know, that's how I roll, you know. It's just what I do. That said... I am eager for the festival this year. I cannot wait to get there. And if you're going to be there, please look me up. I am very difficult to miss. I'm usually the biggest guy in the room who's got the biggest grin on his face because he's having the most fun in the room. I will be bringing my video camera and my audio recorder because I'm going to try to capture a lot of material for an upcoming episode or two or three of the podcast, as well as content for the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel. So if you're there... Even if you don't want to be on mic or on camera, I'd still love to meet you. Please don't hesitate to come up and say hey and introduce yourself. Because I love meeting fellow Monster Kids, fellow Lovecraft fans, and, well, it's going to be a good time. Oh, yeah, and before I sign off, big congratulations to friend of the show, Christopher R. Mim, who just had a very successful world premiere of the film Guns of the Apocalypse. It is... The latest movie in the Mimiverse, I mean, it's still in the Mimiverse, but this one is quite a departure for him. It is set in a post-apocalyptic future. It has the trappings of a Western, and you know what? I'm going to let Steve tell you about it. I urge everyone to go out and get Guns of the Apocalypse. If you're into sci-fi Westerns, I think you'll really enjoy it. It doesn't have any horses, doesn't even have motorcycles or that kind of stuff, but it's got a lot of trappings of spaghetti westerns and set in a post-apocalyptic future with some mutants and other cool stuff and again a very solid piece of filmmaking by christopher Mim. steve was at the premiere i'm so jealous some year i'm going to get to a premiere of a christopher Mim movie because i hear they're amazing just the show they put on it's not just the movie they show trailers they've got people dressed up. I mean, it just sounds like a lot of fun. And Guns of the Apocalypse, I think, is potentially the next step in the evolution of Mim the Movie Maker. It does have ties to the Mimiverse, make no mistake, but it is so different from everything that he's done before. And it's exciting to see a skilled filmmaker and, well, my friend, and those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, taking chances and forcing himself to evolve. Not only did he survive making a different kind of movie, he did it with style. So highly recommend it. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to gunsoftheapocalypse.com. Go check it out. We'll have Brenda back next week to dive into some feedback and might even have a report from this week's Weird Wednesday because I'm going to the Joy Cinema to meet up with Jeff Pollier and company to watch Ega. 
that's going to be a blast too. And because I'm going to Weird Wednesday tonight, I want to go ahead and wrap this up and get this out for you guys and gals to hear. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song the Monster of Piedras Blancas. That belongs to the band The Korsakovs, and it came out on their self-titled EP earlier this year. Check them out at The Korsakovs, and then the number one, dot .bandcamp.com, and go pick up the four-song EP. It's awesome. It's great music. It's a lot of fun. And again, big thanks to them for letting us play their music. My name is Derek M. Cook, and I will talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>